Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 198 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and Frank Sabotka from season two of The Wire remains one of the most pathos-ridden characters ever created. I, I think he's my favourite character in anything ever. I think he's wonderful. He's so... Pathetic is the word, but it's so used just in one context these days that I don't mean it in it's kind of what a miserable, sad man. I mean it in that he makes me feel heartbroken. It's a a masterclass in doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Absolutely. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and when we finish recording this, and I know you're all going to be disappointed by this news, but I'm off to buy a belt. Where's the jeopardy going to be when you stand up, mate? (laughs) No, I know. I know. I mean, I'm going to be able to leave seats. Shuffle out of bank seats without the idea that my trousers might fall down when I'm going to do it. Going to the theatre with you isn't going to be as much fun. No, it's not, is it? I had an incident in being q where oh. I was literally <laughs> seconds away from them falling down. And I thought, no, nah, i just got to do something about this. I'm such an odd shape because I seem to be midway between sizes so that permanently they're either jeans cut me in half or they fall down when I walk. There is no middle ground. And I don't like belts, but I'm going to have to get one. You know, in the first lockdown, you made that plant hanger out of shoelaces. Could you not fashion yourself a a savvy little belt? I probably could, yeah. It might just be easier to go and buy one. I don't know. It would be quite the aesthetic. I mean, given that I gave the last two weeks of my life to getting rid of a sofa in a way that I thought would be simple and really wasn't. (laughs) And I'm Jen Offord, and I don't understand what people have got against soft play. It's mainly the amount of children, isn't I was going to say that. Is it the kids that are covered in snot? I went to soft play at the weekend. My brother and his girlfriend came with us. Me and Lyra, obviously, in Clacton, of all places. Don't know if either of you have ever been to Clacton. I certainly have. It's a vibe, shall we say. Give it its full name, Clacton-on-Sea. Make it sound lovely. Clacton-on-Sea. It's where Sade's from. Can you actually believe that Sade grew up in Clacton-on-Sea? Is there some sort of pier with fun yeah, pear on it or something? Yeah, there's Clacton Pier, yeah. yeah. And just down the way from that magic city. But anyway, soft play. I really enjoyed myself. Coming up, I chat to Michaela Green about her new book, The Money Edit, and what we can do to keep on top of our finances. And I talk to Izzy Wall, assistant curator at Bath Herschel Museum of Astronomy, to talk about Caroline Herschel, the first woman to be paid to work in science. Ooh. Want to guess what century that was in? The 18th. This century? No, last century. The 20th century. Yeah, that seems like the logical answer. In fact, it was the 1700s. Oh, amazing yeah. work, Caroline. In Jenny Off the Blocks, there's a new number one in town, and in Rated or Dated, we ask, was it edgy, Kev? As we watch 1997's Chasing Amy. But first, new guidance, third rails, and happy endings. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'll decide what's fundamentally trivial. Thank you very much. Someone allowed Jacob Rees-Mogg to do some talking again. Yeah, and it turns out, Mickey, we're making a fuss over nothing. I am assuming this is about the parties that were held during lockdown while people were not able to see loved ones who were dying or say goodbye to people because they were following the rules, whereas our shower in power... We're not. You are absolutely correct, Mickey. Well done. I mean, that does sound fundamentally trivial, doesn't it? Oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Putting the fun into fundamentally trivial. <laughs> Putting the mental into fundamentally <laughs> trivial. Oh, my God, he's never been so accurate. <laughs> 
Anyway, over in the Noonan's household, it turns out I may as well have put a load of cash in a bin and set fire to it with all the events I've missed in the past seven days thanks to COVID. And yeah, that would probably have still been a cheaper way of heating our flat than the crippling new energy tariffs. Mm -hmm. But while I was gutted to miss a Glasgow gig from the Twilight Sad, one of my favourite bands that's been postponed since April 2020, I do feel grateful to have COVID when it's much less deadly and I'm as bolstered against it as a human can be. Really fucking grateful. Because while I still feel like a shovel full of piping hot shite, COVID... <laughs> she doesn't look that bad, people. Can I just, can I just interrupt and say that? That's why we're friends, because she's a really good liar. That's not true. You're a shit liar. But yeah, regardless of how I sound and look, COVID is less dangerous for most of us now. The most of us bit is key. People who are clinically vulnerable remain clinically vulnerable and woefully underserved by government advice. An infection can still land some people in hospital, particularly those with weakened immune systems or underlying health conditions. And there is, of course, the question of long COVID, with currently precious few answers. Because reports of the pandemic being over have been greatly exaggerated. In fact, as new guidance came into play as of the start of the month, neatly coinciding with the government scrapping free COVID testing in England, cases have hit a record high with almost 5 million people estimated to be infected. God, way to make me feel not special, eh? (laughs) Take that, COVID! Oh, wait, no. Indeed, the NHS has expanded the official list of symptoms, adding the following to the well-charted three symptoms of a fever, a new and persistent cough, and a loss or change in taste or smell, of which I've only had one symptom. The new bad boys are shortness of breath, feeling tired or exhausted, aching body, headache, sore throat, blocked or runny nose, loss of appetite, diarrhoea, feeling sick or being sick, of which I've had like seven out of nine, although for a while I did just think they correlated with being a woman of 45. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Under new guidance, kids who test positive for COVID are advised to self-isolate for just three days rather than five, while adults who test positive are advised to stay at home for five days but should also avoid people who might be clinically vulnerable for 10 days after their first positive test. And we all know that it's really easy to spot people who are clinically vulnerable just in the street and out and about on public transport, right? Yeah, oh yeah. 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 Since February the 24th, there's no legal obligation to do any of this. Employees with COVID symptoms are simply told to, quote, try to work from home if you can. If you're unable to work from home, talk to your employer about options available to you. It seems... Even over the past two years, we've still not learned how to operate as a society purely on office-based employment, though, (laughs) which explains why there's currently chaos at EasyJet and BA, to name just a couple of big hitters affected by COVID staff sickness. You can't fly a plane from the self-isolating safety of your front room, guys. Who knew? I mean, it's it's a wake-up call for all of us, Hannah. What's more, and I mentioned this in the Bush Telegram, but it stands mentioning again, results of shop-bought lateral flow tests, and I picked up a pack of five for £9.80 from Boots, currently cannot be registered on the government or NHS websites, which feels like a massive flaw, no? I'm just going to do a lot of that. (laughs) It's just making me jealous because that is too much for my lungs at the moment. Look, I'm no epidemiologist or mathematician, but it seems to me that all of that means the rates of infection that get reported aren't going to match the number of people actually with COVID. Well done for getting through that. (laughs) Thanks, I need a lie down. (laughs) With your shortness of breath and your diary. (laughs) Mate, it's all happening all at once. (laughs) 
Oh, it's like a sewer in here. Please distract me. So, you know what I was thinking, Mickey? Go on. It's been a while since I've made people furious with my views. <laughs> so I've decided to grab hold of one of feminism's third rails. Are you in? I'm always in. Okay, then. Be prepared for your hair to get frizzled. The war in Ukraine continues to horrify, and while all human life is going on there, there is one story that hasn't had a great deal of attention from the media, and as this is a feminist podcast, I think we ought to give it some. Mm -hmm. And that is the plight of women trapped in the country because they are acting as surrogate mothers for overseas clients. And, of course, the plight of the babies they have given birth to or are about to. Yeah. Paid surrogacy is legal in Ukraine, meaning when the child is born, the woman giving birth is not registered on the birth certificate. The prospective new parents or parent are. Meaning it's a pretty simple procedure in terms of legal issues to get the child out of the country and back to their new parent's home country where the rest of the paperwork can be done. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a pretty simple procedure medically, well, I'm guessing that, like all pregnancies, it works on a case-by-case basis. And whether it is simple morally, where's that rail? Let me grab hold of it. (laughs) Now, there are plenty of people who object to surrogacy because they think science shouldn't interfere with nature's plan or God's plan, or they believe a child should have two parents and one should be a man and one should be a woman. And needless to say, I've got no time for any of that nonsense. Nope. I have a lot more time for the argument based in feminist and class analysis that says that the power dynamic between a woman using her womb to pay her way and the people who can afford to pay her for that puts her at a permanent disadvantage. And when it comes to the crunch, her needs will always be the last thing that anyone cares about. Yeah, definitely. And if you've just had a knee-jerk reaction to me saying that, I'd like to refer you to the first big story about surrogacy that came out of Ukraine. And that was about a Kerry couple who managed to get their son, newly born to a Ukrainian surrogate, back to Ireland on February the 25th as war broke out. Note how many times the woman who had given birth just days before and was now recuperating in a war zone was mentioned in the story. Or, I'll save you the time, it's none. Well, what a surprise there, eh? A BBC report a few weeks ago laid out the increasingly bleak situation for surrogates in the country where an estimated 500 children a year are born for overseas parents. Women who have already given birth to that child, a child they weren't expecting to have to support, are left with a decision. They can start to raise it themselves until the situation improves, something they weren't expecting to have to do and certainly not in a war zone, something that will ultimately have emotional and or financial repercussions or they can take the baby to the clinic they worked with and leave it there. And many have. The BBC reported in late March that 41 newborn babies were living in the basement of a Kiev clinic, Fuck. and that number was expected to reach 100 in the next few months. Fuck. And I think we can all agree that that is no way to start life. Totally. Women still pregnant are also left in a highly tenuous position. If they leave the country, and given some of them have children of their own, they are desperate to... They don't know where they will give birth and what the legal repercussions will be for the prospective new parents either. Some children have apparently been successfully handed to new parents from within other countries. So that's not Ukraine and not the country that those parents live in, to clarify that. Mm -hmm. 
But most of these countries have different laws when it comes to surrogacy, making it highly complicated. For the women who choose to stay, rather than risk giving birth in a queue at the Polish border or on a train in Hungary or whatever worst-case scenario is flashing through their mind, for them, there is only danger and the terrible fear that they are risking the life of their own children to protect somebody else's. Now, that's not to say that nothing is being done to help these women. In Ireland, for example, there seems to be some attempts to bring surrogates to the country with their families if necessary. Although it's worth pointing out, Ireland is among the biggest users of Ukrainian surrogacy. And it is worth pointing out, of course, that all of this is very stressful for the people who have all of their future hopes and dreams tied up in the contents of another woman's womb. Of course. Could anyone have foreseen this shit show? Maybe not. But since it is here happening now, isn't this the time to ask some serious questions about how we make sure something like this never happens again? Definitely. And I mean, I don't have any answers. I don't know that there are any easy to reach answers, but I do have a lot of sympathy for everyone involved in that situation. And, you know, sympathy isn't top trumps, but Mm. definitely for me, it goes with Bubba's, then the women and then the parents, you know, that is the way it kind of falls for me. But there's there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of sadness and uncertainty and, and horror. Yeah, I mean, my sympathy goes to people primarily who are in a war zone. I mean, it's terrible. And genuinely, I don't know. I I know that the conversation, like I say, it is a conversation that people get very angry if you have. People will say, if you say you're not on board with surrogacy fully as an idea, there is often a suggestion that that comes from homophobia because lots of men use surrogates, lots of gay couples use surrogates. And undoubtedly, for some people who object to it, it is homophobia that is there objection but you know you look at this and you think okay so this is a war how often do wars happen well we don't know what's going to happen in the future natural disaster hitting ukraine would have had the same effect Mm. another meltdown at chernobyl would have had the same effect there's a transactional attitude towards a part of someone's body Mm. a part of a woman's body then it's always going to be hugely complicated and vulnerable to these kinds of situations more vulnerable to these kind of situations. And I know it's not simple because people will say, just why don't you just adopt or why don't you just foster? And I offered to become a foster carer about five years ago, not because I was desperate for children, but just because I felt like there was something I could give children who needed somewhere to live. And I was told that basically I couldn't do it and have a full-time job. And I pointed out to them that without a full-time job, I couldn't afford to do Mm. it. So it isn't always as simple as, well, why don't you just take on one of the many children that need a home? It's not always that simple. There are hoops that you need to jump through, and for good reason. But not everybody can jump through those hoops either financially, or perhaps they've got something in their past that is going to look bad to an adoption agency. But to most people, that's in the past, that's done. So, yeah, it's hard. But the way it's working clearly doesn't work because this has happened. It has happened. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that you'll know the answer to this, so it's probably not for the podcast. But obviously, like, Ukraine was a war zone in 2014. Like, there must have been a similar thing then, right? If it is the go-to place. I think the reason is because most sort of, in the same way that a lot of places here, you know, high-end agencies will run out of London. Certainly where I run my surrogacy agency from. (laughs) So Kiev is is a long way 
from like you know Crimea and those places so it probably felt safe but who knows if you're if you're desperate if you're a couple you live in Manchester Dublin Paris whatever and 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 you're desperate and someone suggests the Ukraine to you I'm imagining that the agency that you go through that will make money out of you whether or not they told you there was a risk that there would be a war coming in Ukraine I'd be surprised if they did perhaps the answer is that those places have to be better yeah and the Um, contracts need to be yeah just like even more watertight about stuff like this yeah have a have a sort of a disaster plan written into them i absolutely think like it is such a feminist issue and it is maybe worth reminding people because a lot of people donned the handmaid's tail garb to go and fight for abortion rights which obviously is healthcare and absolutely need to be fought for they are you know women's right to autonomy over their own bodies but the handmaid's tail is about surrogates Mm. it's about farming women to have children so there's always going to be conflicts of morals and like interests and clash of interests and I think, yeah, yeah it needs it, it needs looking into so that everyone involved in that transaction is is safe and as looked after. Yeah, agreed. So, Mickey, Russian Doll is finally coming back for a second series. Whoop, 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 whoop. Oh, she's fit. And I know that's not the point, but she's so lovely. <laughs> and if that's not good enough news for you, although I just seen it kind of was. <laughs> anyway, have some more. Researchers at Frequency Therapeutics, a company that grew out of MIT, that's Massachusetts Institute of Technology for people who don't know, has developed a drug which stimulates the growth of hair cells in the inner ear. So what? I hear you say. Um, Well, I say here, but as you know, that is actually quite a big problem for me. Well, the reason we should be excited about having hairy inner ears <laughs> is because that's how we actually hear. And things like age, loud noises, certain medical drugs damage those hairs, causing hearing loss. But Frequency's first clinical trial saw statistically significant improvements in speech perception. That's the ability to hear and understand what it is that's being said or mm-hmm. identify rather than just, I know they're talking but I don't know what they're saying, which is currently what the situation I have in one of my ears is. Anyway, they saw improvements after just one injection with some responses lasting nearly two years. More studies are being done. So this is very much a case of more news as it happens. But I have to say this seems positive. That is excellent news. You had me at Russian Doll. And then you made it even better. No word on whether it makes monkeys more intelligent yet, though. But fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Come on, monkey overlords. <laughs> more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I'm faced with decisions, decisions. We've got Richard Maidley on Good Morning Britain asking, how exactly is rape a weapon of war? Seriously, just fuck off and do some research, shitbird. And will somebody please rescue Judy? I just don't know how that woman does it. Richard Maidley should be used as a weapon of war. <laughs> he is a put weapon. Put him on telly in Russia 24 hours a day until they break. <laughs> then we've got Louis C.K. just casually picking up a Grammy for Sincerely Louis C.K. His first special since those sexual misconduct allegations he admitted were true. 
Will nobody think of the powerful men whose careers have been damaged by women speaking out about being assaulted by powerful men? I mean, it won't fucking take long. The Hollywood Reporter used the headline, Louis C.K. wins Grammy for first special since sexual misconduct allegations. <laughs> Which, as our pal Liz Buckley pointed out on Twitter, is quite a specific category, but with a lot of competition. <laughs> and then we've got a sexism of the week with a happy ending for women. So let's go with that one. Please. Yeah, we have to first go back in time to March 2020 and the start of the pandemic in the UK when ministers permitted abortion pills to be sent via post to be taken at home after a phone consultation in a new system referred to as telemedicine. These measures allowed women and pregnant people to end a pregnancy within the privacy and comfort of their own home. They were also of particular benefit to those who struggle to attend face-to-face appointments, including those in abusive relationships, those with caring responsibilities and those without transport. But obviously, there's only so much privacy, comfort, consideration and healthcare women should be afforded. Am I right? Nay, deserve. <laughs> Indeed. Any would say. So the measures were, thanks to the government, due to cease on March the 25th. However, thanks to sterling efforts from Baroness Sugg in the Lords, a lot of MPs inundated with letters from their constituents and from an alliance of medical and women's groups, as well as abortion providers, Last week, MPs voted to make at-home early medical abortions permanent. Hooray! As BPAS rightly says, this is the biggest step forward for abortion rights since the passing of the 1967 Abortion Act. Great. Yeah, I mean, they could trust women to take drugs at home. Who knew? (laughs) Certainly not me. I think you knew that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joined by Michaela Green, Chartered financial planner, podcast host, and author of the new book, The Money Edit. Hello, Michaela. How are you today? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you, Jen. So first of all, I wouldn't describe myself as particularly clued up with money and finances and things like that. So your title, Chartered Financial Planner, is not a title I'm familiar with. So can you explain to me, first and foremost... What is a Chartered Financial Planner and and what does that qualify you to do? Yes, well, basically, in a nutshell, a financial planner is somebody who helps you, you know, work out exactly where you are in your current financial state, where you want to get to in your future, and just really connects the dots to help you get to your end goal and your destination. The chartered aspect of it is just basically the highest qualification you can get in the industry. So it's almost perceived as like the gold standard level. Uh, So you know you're kind of getting the best advice from all aspects of, you know, finance, whether it's financial planning, whether it's pensions, investments, insurance, you name it. Chartered financial planner should you know, have the know-how. So, Michaela, you have got bags of experience and you started your career in finance as a cashier at Nationwide Bank at the age of 16, right? So fast forward a few years and you've now written a book, The Money Edit. Can you tell me about The Money Edit and why your background puts you in a sort of unique position to write this book? The Money Edit is a no-blame, no-shame guide to taking control of your financial future and taking control of your money, which I find many people struggle with in one way or the other, but it's something that many people also want to get to grips with. So it's almost like the fill in the gap. 
in terms of giving people the financial confidence they need and the clarity to either take control of their money or take their, their control to the next level. And that's what the book aims to do. It really takes you through that journey from the basics of finance and financial literacy, which is really important, right till where you get to that point in life where you think, well, I've got this and I've got that. What do I do next? I might have bought a property. How do I then you know, elevate from there? And so it covers all of those aspects. In terms of what you mentioned, me starting at 16 I suppose my route was unconventional. Most financial planners don't start off from grassroots and kind of work their way up right to the top. So that really taught me the ins and outs of many of the issues people face on different levels. From a cashier, I would experience a lot more different struggles. I think we all face some form of issues with money, whether it's something that's happened in the past or whether it's preventing you from something in the future. The money edit is really just something that opens up the world of financial planning to everyone because it's, it should be accessible to everyone, which is, which is my view. Yeah, so I mean, I've read that you think that this kind of stuff should be taught in schools, really. And, you know, I absolutely agree with you. I'd certainly, you know, I went off to university when I was 19, never had to manage a budget before, got myself in absolutely shit loads of debt, which I never cleared. It got worse when I was like a young person living in London. And like it took me until my early 30s to, to sort of sort it out. And I absolutely agree with you that it is something that we should definitely have more information about when we're younger. I just wondered, given that that is so like abundantly obvious and clear that it was, you know, in our benefits to better understand how to control our finances. Why do you think we don't get taught about it? It was something that, you know, the government wanted to roll out at one point. And this was going a couple of years back now, because it's always been a thing, you know, why is money and finance not taught in schools? I suppose we we have those aspects of learning about money, but it doesn't go into the depths that actually helps people in reality when they go off on their own and they've got to manage their own money. So it was rolled out. And the issue was many of the teachers lacked confidence in terms of teaching students how to manage money and I think this is where the issue came in and it's like well actually we need somebody who really understands about money to then teach the students and this is where the issue has come come about because there's just not enough financial advisors in the UK (laughs) to launch out something like that and so yes it needs to be put in place but again I want to bring it back to, yes, it should be taught in schools, but let's not just leave it to the schools. Let let parents get empowered, you know, so parents can empower their children as young as you can teach children about managing money. And and that way, you know, those those things that you implement from a young age, it helps when you when you go into that adult life and you go off on your own to university you know the kind of basic steps to follow so it's kind of issues like that because there is no real right or wrong way to manage money but it's important that we we have some form of understanding the subtitle of the book is your no shame no blame guide to taking control of your money we've talked to people on the podcast before and i know that i find money a bit of a difficult thing to get my head around and other people obviously do as well but I find the word shame quite interesting do you think there is a sort of element of shame or or embarrassment almost about money that kind of prevents us from from having the conversations we need to have 
Absolutely. I feel that people feel ashamed and embarrassed about their finances and especially even opening up with, you know, the people that's closest to them, like their spouse or their friends or parents and other family members. I find when there are situations where people are open with money, it has had much better outcomes, you know. And so I am always encouraging people, you know, speak more openly about money because that's that's the best way to overcome that that feeling of shame because it's almost as if you know you feel like you're going to be judged for your own personal finances but what I find is that many people overthink and 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 they think of the worst and it's not actually that bad or as bad as they believe their finances are. It's, it's all well and good if I ask you the question what's the, like the single best thing I could do to you know with my money to manage my money and you might say invest it or I suspect you know pay off your debts but what if I am not in a position to do either of those things what is the best thing you can do with your money if like the many people out there you don't have a lot of it readily available to you best thing you can do with your money have a clear picture of what your finances look like because I've seen it time and time again that somebody tells themselves that I'm not able to do this because I haven't got enough. But when we do look into the finances, actually they do. You know, so I think have a clear picture of your current financial situation. Just And, and what that means is like understanding what, what your income is, if it fluctuates, what's the average of your income, understanding and analysing your spending and looking at some of the areas where you spend and thinking, you know, do I really want to spend as much in X, Y, and Z on takeouts? Or do I really want to spend so much on socialising? And then I think it's the next step is really looking at what your goals are. So depending on what goals you've got in mind, that will help bring you back to square one where you are in your current situation and help you understand what you need to do with your finances in order to help you achieve those goals. So a lot of planning is very goal orientated. And, and I think, yeah, having that clear picture exactly of what your finances looks like now and what you want it to look like is a big game changer. I suppose also, you know, maybe you don't have money to put to one side, but having a better picture of your income, your expenditure, your budget can help you from overspending as well, right? Yes, it can help you from overspending. And also, also sometimes it could give you that motivation you need to provide some form of additional income. Because, you know, budgeting is not always about spending less it also could be about earning more as well i want to talk to you a little bit about property if that's all right obviously the the property market as things stand it's difficult it's difficult to get on the old ladder as they say and i only you know i bought a share in a shared ownership flat in 2018 and you know when you're single as well it is it's very very hard to manage now We've heard some stuff recently, some high profile names, shall we say, saying things like, well, you just got to stop eating smashed avocado on toast or, or, or you've got to stop going out with your mates or, or whatever. There are much bigger forces at play here than any of us can really have much influence over. And I fundamentally reject the idea that I didn't get on the property ladder until I was 35 because... 
I ate too many avocados. I don't even really like them, Michaela. I don't like the texture. They're weird. It's time that I admitted that to myself. I'm going to stop pretending. Anyway, so what are the kind of things that people can do to kind of clean up their finances a bit or, or make themselves appear more, I don't know, attractive to lenders possibly? Yes. So I want to touch upon the avocado. Okay. Because firstly, <laughs> because I, I think it is, yeah, it's, it's really strict and it's really tough on, and I think that's where some of the shame, you know, comes in, which I've mentioned in the book, just telling somebody, you know, you should completely stop that because the truth is we've still got to live, you know, we still want to enjoy things, but I think it should still all be within reason. You know, so you might still continue to do your socialising. If you like a takeout, you'll keep doing that. But it's all about saying, okay, but I'm spending, I don't know, £250 on socialising. And even if I shave it down a bit and I reduce that to maybe 150 that's an extra £100 I can put towards, you know, my savings on a monthly basis. It might mean, you know, going out one less night. But what it means is that you still get to do the things you enjoy as as well as making sure you're contributing to your future. So I think it's about analysing the savings, your, your expenses and looking at things like that. Because another important aspect of that is, you know, when you do come to take out a mortgage, they will analyse your expenses. So if you don't do it, you know, they're going to do it and they will nitpick at all these all these things that you have, especially if there's anything excessive. As much as possible, you know, keep your expenses as low as possible within reason without you too much affecting your standard of living and also your enjoyable life. In terms of trying to get a mortgage, you know, it really depends on your current situation. But what I would say is that you definitely want to seek out as much help as possible. And again, this is another part of the aspect of being open about money. Sometimes it might be, I'm not going to say, because not always parents have the the funds available to help children. Mm. But in actual fact, Bank of Mum and Dad, I, I believe, is like the third top lender on the market. And so it might be worth, you know, speaking with mum and dad, seeing if there's any options for them to help there or other friends um, or family members. So then the other second thing you could do is find out schemes available to you, especially if you're a first time buyer. Like, you know, you mentioned you've taken up a shared ownership property. It means that you're able to get on the property ladder at an affordable amount. And then you've got other government schemes like the help to buy where, where they help you with a 20 percent deposit. So there's, it's about seeking out those options. You have another one where you can club together with friends as well. So it might be that, you know, if you have a good friend that you, you work well with, then it better be a good friend because if you're you know, joining, <laughs> joining yeah. parties with them, you know, um, that you can kind of trust them really financially. But that's another option. I think you want to be exploring all of these things because for many, buying a property outright generally that's that's a huge sum for people to you know save like a thirty thousand pounds deposit mm. in say for instance you know it's a huge amount for many people to to put together but again i have seen that with going through your finances having that clear view being committed it can be done and it has been done many of times when people think that it's not possible the date on which we're talking. This morning, Rishi Sunak has delivered his spring statement and we're nationally and globally, it must be said, going through a bit of a hard time 
right now in terms of finances. So I wondered if you could explain to me what is our best bet for future proofing our finances or just weathering this immediate storm? Inflation is rising and for many it is quite a scary time, you know, and rightfully so, because we've we've got many of things increasing. It's not just food, it's fuel, the whole cost of, of living basically. And to a certain degree, you know, many other experts have mentioned there's nothing more you can do. You know, it's outside of our control. A lot of it has come down to lack of manufacturing productions and also the recent events with Ukraine. There's, there's many factors that come into place, which doesn't make it easy. But as much as possible, now more than ever, I've sung about it quite a lot on this podcast, but having a clear view of what your finances is, um, you'll be surprised how many people don't look into these things and just understand where you're spending you know get rid of anything that is is not used they say as as brits we we waste eight billion pounds on unused apps and just little things you know because it all adds up it all adds up this these 10 pounds 20 pounds apps sometimes that you sign up for or even the free trials that you sign up for and then it's taking money out without you realizing a huge part of the rising costs what people are facing is energy So with the energy, you know, it's a matter of trying to be as energy efficient as possible. And there are some things in the budget around government providing zero VAT for Mm. for individuals who's, yeah, for solar panels and things like that. But those things are costly as well to get installed. And the return's not as huge. So so yes, that's a, a benefit, I suppose. But again, in reality, how how much people will be able to install solar panels on their properties, who knows? But I think if we can try and be as energy efficient as possible, and it might sound like the obvious, but the things like turning off the lights, you know, reducing how much time you boil in the kettle, filling the washing machine... Again, it's sometimes it's just constantly reminding yourself because a lot of the time we do take these things for granted. But now we are at a situation where things are peaking. It's it's more than ever to just really hone in and control on that. Going back with the energy prices as well, comparing the markets, going on the comparisons, absolutely finding out the cheapest energy provider that you can Fixing a tariff as well, so you know exactly what you're paying, although that can still fluctuate sometimes. But fixing a tariff so you have this set amount, many providers aren't able to offer them. So contact your provider you know, and get one of those in place. And the other big aspect is food, food and fuel. So with those two, I think planning in advance as much as possible. So again, it's another thing that we're we're generally not used to doing. We don't really plan our meals. Some people do, but I think as a nation, we, we, we're kind of impulsive. But you want to try and avoid that because that is where the costs can actually rack up. So you want to try and plan your meals weekly, buy in advance, you know, buy bulk where possible. That way you're able to hopefully save money on your food bills. With the fuel, the same thing with the fuel, you know, you planning in advance because you want to find as well the gas station that's got the cheapest fuel or petrol or diesel these things might sound like oh well that's only saving me a bit here and there but if you do that in all aspects you will find that there will be some a a good amount of money savings and I think any way that you can save right now to protect yourself or shelter yourself from these rising costs is is really important. So Michaela your book, The Money Edit, Your No Shame, No Blame Guide to Taking Control of Your Money, is published on the 31st of March by Yellow Kite. You've also got a podcast, haven't you? 
Yes. Your financial journey highlights the highs and lows and everything in between, because I feel that, you know, we never talk about the in-between. We always hear about the really glossed over stories about how somebody got rich and famous and really well off, you know, doing really well with money. And then we hear about sometimes the really bad stories, you know, how somebody's struggling really bad. But we never hear about the in-between or the journey from the lows to the highs. And so, you know, it explores all of that. Where can we follow you on social media to keep up to date with what you're up to? Yes, so you can follow me on Instagram at The Wealth Check. Michaela, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jen. It was a pleasure. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Izzy Wall, Assistant Curator at the Herschel Museum of Astronomy in Bath. Thank you very much for joining us, Isabel. Hi. Maybe we could start with you telling us what the Herschel Museum is and why you are in Bath. The Herschel Museum of Astronomy was the site where the amateur astronomer William Herschel discovered the planet Uranus. He was a musician living in Bath. He was originally from Hanover, which is now Germany. And he'd come over to Bath working as a professional musician and was interested in astronomy and made his own telescopes and was doing systematic sweeps of the night sky in his garden. And he stumbled across this object, which he thought was a a nebulous star or possibly a comet. But after further observation and conversation with other astronomers, it was finally identified as a planet. And it was the first planet to have been discovered since ancient times. So all the others up to Saturn had been discovered by the ancient Greeks or Babylonians that were known about, whereas Uranus was the first one uh, to be discovered in, in modern times. And you need to look through a telescope to be able to identify it as well. So that's why we're here. Great. Now, we're not here to talk about William, interesting though he is. We're here to talk about his sister, Caroline. Now, Caroline Herschel, the first woman to earn money from science, the first winner of the Royal Astronomical Society Gold Award, which was in 1828, wasn't won by another woman until 1996. Now, I'm quoting all this like I know it, when in fact, until I saw a press release from you, I had never... (laughs) even heard of Caroline Herschel and I find that quite surprising as we've had lots of women in science talking about women hidden women in science Mm. and you know we've had a lot of historians talking about hidden women in history I feel slightly better that I watched uh, I watched a talk by Dr Sheila Canini who you might know she worked at the Royal Astronomical Society she said she had never heard of her until she started working there so I do feel a bit better Why has history really obscured Caroline's history? I don't know. Possibly because Caroline herself didn't consider herself as a pioneer. She very much considered herself as an assistant to her brother, despite the fact that she was an observer in her own right. And she discovered eight comets and about 14 nebulae and created... Um, incredible catalogue of stars from her brother's feet. So I think she was very humble and very grateful to her brother who brought her over to England because she was essentially a, a servant for her family. She got smallpox and typhus as a child and survived, but they deemed her not uh, not pretty enough to get married. So they, were, they weren't a rich family, they were quite poor. So she was kind of allocated as servant to the household and William took her out of that household and brought her to Bath as a to be a singer and then when astronomy took over she became his assistant and looking through all of her kind of notes 
it's all very deferential to him. And it's not to say she wasn't proud of it. She was very proud of her accomplishments. But yeah, she she didn't shout about it. And I think probably because of her brother and how famous he was, he gets talked about that she doesn't. And even at the museum, it used to be the William Herschel Museum um, and the William Herschel Society that has now changed. And we are very keen and it's one of our priorities to shout about Caroline Moore because she was as much part of the, the story and William wouldn't have accomplished as much without her because whilst he was doing the observing, looking at the telescope, she would be sat at a table in the house next nearby, writing down all his observations. She'd be making all the calculations. She'd be checking with the different star catalogues. So she'd be kind of scribing all of it. Then the next morning, because it will be happening in the middle of the night, next morning, she would sit down and make a fair copy of it. And she'd check it all. And she was meticulous. And the, the catalogues and the, the deep sky surveys that William carried out wouldn't have been what they became and wouldn't have been so successful without her. So I think it's like she's kind of gotten hidden in her brother's shadow. Mm. But at the time, she was acknowledged. She was um, respected was by the, the yep. other astronomers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was wondering what contemporaneous sort of opinions of her were. They had a lot of respect for her as an astronomer in her own right. And she was the first woman to have a paper read out at the Royal Society when she discovered her first comment in 1787. She wrote to to the astronomer royal um masculine about it and she even went to stay at greenwich for a week with them so yeah she was respected by the other astronomers and thought highly of at the time possibly just history neglects to carry on writing down yeah after the event yeah we say that she was yeah the first in 1828 nobody no woman won it again until 1996 yeah am i right in thinking that she could win an award from the royal astronomer why do I struggle with that word so much? I think it's a fear that I might say astrological, <laughs> the Royal Astronomical Society, but she couldn't be a member? At the time, so she was made honorary member of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1835 alongside Mary Somerville. But the next one wasn't until the late 19th century. So she did, she did become an honorary member a bit later on. But it was actually her nephew, uh, John that set up the Royal Astronomical Society as well. Really? Um, yeah, what so, a bird. Well, I would be yeah. living with my nephew if he did that. <laughs> yeah, so he was one of the he was one of the founding members of the society and, and William was its first president, although he he died very very soon afterwards. So yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing, but yeah, it was uh, it took that long to for her to be uh, acknowledged. Now, you mentioned she had smallpox. Uh, this is yes. the second interview I've done that includes something about smallpox in, in mm. as many days. Not something that comes up regularly, normally. <laughs> she was tiny, physically tiny, wasn't she? Yes. Because four foot three. Four foot three. I mean, I'm five mm. foot and I'm pretty tiny. So, yeah, yeah four foot three is incredible. Mm. And you would think that having those two diseases you know in childhood would have had a, a long-term effect on her well life. that was that was a long-term effect so it was because of her yeah. typhus mm. that um stunted her growth nonetheless she lived to 96 she was 97 97 97 she was nearly 98 she died 
a few months before her 98th birthday. She was a phenomenally strong woman. It is incredible to think that most people don't survive smallpox. A A lot of people don't survive it. And a lot of people don't survive typhus either. So there was an incident one evening when they were observing. The telescope was massive and was held up with various pulleys and these like big meat hook things in the ground to, to hold it down. And she slipped and fell and impaled herself on one of these meat hooks, essentially. Oh, my God. And it was only when her, her brother was telling her to hurry up because she was she was going around to move the telescope or something. She was like, I need help. Um, and only then, then he hurried down. But it was a little while before he did. And two of the workmen, and they were very squeamish and couldn't do anything. Um, so she had to kind of remove herself from the meat hook, leaving quite a lot of her, about a pound of flesh behind her. And then, yeah, it took like, over six weeks to get over it. And she survived that. And like the, that kind of injury with infection, it would very easily kill someone in in those days and what she had to say for it is that at least she didn't inconvenience her brother because it was cloudy for the rest of the night so he wouldn't have been able to do any observing anyway so yeah she survived that and wow and yeah 18th century life was not not easy and she was not from a rich family at all they were quite poor her father was a band member in the Hanoverian guards that he was in the army and uh, yeah, they, they didn't have, have very much at all. So it wasn't like she was living this privileged lifestyle. She was one tough woman. And yeah. I'm in awe of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I had, a, I had a new pair of shoes on the other day and they rubbed and you would have thought I'd <laughs> lost a leg with the drama <laughs> I made of it. I sent photographs of it to people. <laughs> Give me sympathy, it really hurts. She was also German. What was it like to be German in the 1800s in the UK? It helped that the king was also German. I think, I mean, so she didn't know any English when she arrived. She got taught English by her brother William and after six weeks was sent off to the market on her own to buy the food for the family. (laughs) Her other brother, Alexander, actually snuck behind, like kept an eye on her behind her to make sure she was all right. But she didn't know that at the time. George III was also the electorate of Hanover. I think probably it was better being German than French. Yeah, at, at that the time. time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at that time. So there were there were links, um there were, there were more links with Germany and Britain. I think possibly being French at that time would have been a bit more difficult, seeing as we were at war with them for the majority of it. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately I can't really say much on that with, with a great deal of knowledge. <laughs> What you can tell me about with a great deal of knowledge is who came to see her because you have made a recent acquisition, haven't you, which is her guest book. Yes, it had actually been at the museum on loan for the last 16 years, but the lender had got to a point where he wanted to sell it and he very graciously offered us the chance to buy it instead of going to auction, which we're we're very grateful for because, um, yeah, when things go to auction, they, they tend to go skyrocket in price. And sometimes go abroad as well. Yes, and yeah. yeah, that was that was kind of our our main worry was the fact that if this um, this item went to auction, it might go abroad or might go into private hands. And we were very much wanted to keep it with public access. So it is a, a visitor book. Caroline started recording the visitors that came to see William after his discovery. The various people came to visit him as soon as he'd made it, but she made a note. She wrote that it's like, I couldn't remember who. The idea about writing down the visitors only came up 
in like 1782 or three. Uh, we, we hadn't thought to write them down. And so it was a, a yeah, um, a Vince book that she wrote from 1783 to 1792. It's the first of a series of visitor books. There are there are more, it goes on later than that, but this, this volume um, goes up to 1782, uh, writing from Datchet near Windsor and um, Observatory House in Slough, where they moved. So when they left Bath, they first moved to Datchet and then to Slough, where they were based for the rest of their lives. And it records the king and queen coming to visit, various members of the royal family, foreign dignitaries, yeah, various ambassadors, all sorts of eminent scientists and astronomers from all over Europe, North America and, and the UK, but also celebrities. So Joseph Hayden paid a visit when he was visiting England, although didn't actually meet William Herschel, he was off somewhere else at the time. Fanny Burney is mentioned in there, along with Sheridan. So, yeah, all sorts of really interesting people um, going to visit. Yeah, that's incredible. Telescopes, yeah. She's one of those people that poses an interesting historical question, which is if she hadn't been struck down with those things at the start, you know, mm-hmm. if she had grown to a size in which she would have and not been scarred and she would have been a, a marriageable proposition, you say, because, I mean, I mm-hmm. don't know if a woman who's four foot three could bear children, it, it, it would be quite difficult for her, mm-hmm. especially in those times. That actually, had her life gone well at the start, all of this would not have happened? Yeah, it's very true if she'd have, because yeah, she was quite young when her her parents deemed her unmarriageable, uh, marriable even, and the normal route would have been, yeah, for her to get married, have children, and a lot of women at the time died in childbirth. It was a risky thing. So yeah, it is kind of fortuitous. If she hadn't been such a favourite of her brother, she would have never come over to England. If he hadn't have discovered Uranus, she would have been just a singer, or she might have been a successful singer. She might have been really famous for something else, because she... She came over to be trained as a singer and was was doing well for herself. And it was William's discovery, the salary from the king, that to be his personal astronomer, that made William up sticks, leave his musical career, and and go to go to Slough with Caroline with him. Um, she gave up her, her musical career. She was was being offered opportunities in Birmingham, and she but she wanted to stay with her brother, so she went with him. And because she hadn't she didn't have that, she became his astronomical assistant so yeah you never know she might have been a famous singer um yeah. if she hadn't have spotted Uranus and she obviously had a vast intellect and intelligence because her, her education as a child is very basic she learned to read and write and like ba- basic arithmetic but that was about it her, her father actually wanted to teach her more he wanted to have her more of an education than with her brothers but it was her mother funnily enough, that didn't want that. Her mother was illiterate herself and didn't want Caroline to oh, get... That's good enough for me not being able to and, read Right, well, She didn't want her to get ideas about her station, but she didn't let her learn French because she didn't want her to become a governess. Even her little brother wasn't allowed a dancing master because her mother didn't want Caroline to learn as well. She, and she would have been in the house that she would have learned too. So she was being really restricted. But at the age of 22, when she came to Bath, started learning under her brother she was doing really complex calculations by the end of it and and yes she learned an entire entirely new language as an adult complex arithmetic and all all of this work she was doing in her second second language as well she was writing in english so all of all of her um scientific notebooks and everything it's all in english so she was she was doing it all as a second language 
And all of that she'd learned as an adult. It wasn't like she was a child and was able yeah. to absorb it all. So she was incredibly intelligent. There was always something bubbling under there. But yeah, whether it was, yeah, a chance of luck that it, yeah. the, the way her life went that enabled her to be able to express it in ways that she did. So tell me, what do we need to do? I mean, recording this podcast is a good start. What do we need to do to make Caroline Herschel better known? Because it seems to be a crime that more people don't know, A, what she did, mm. but B, her story, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think she's becoming better known in scientific circles and definitely the astronomical um, circles. But she is starting to creep into children's books. So there is Caroline's Comet children's book based on um, on her life and she's referenced in various kind of female scientists books for kids. I think it's, it's slightly tricky because it's in a very scientific field and ast- astronomy is great for some people, other people it's like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> so I think that because it's not a kind of a really obvious and well-known discovery that she made, it's slightly more tricky yeah. Um, to shout about it but we should be shouting about it more yeah agreed. I, think, I think that's that's the thing this year's the the 200th anniversary of her brother william's death and we're doing a big series of events and exhibition at the museum but we're not forgetting about caroline because she was a big part of it in his life and you can't really talk about one without talking about the other so i think there's an element of if you're going to talk about william herschel you need to talk about caroline as well yeah and just a wider knowledge about the women who were also working in science in the 18th, 19th century, early 20th century, because they were there. She wasn't the only one. She was the first officially paid female scientist, but there were others before her. There were others that their husbands got the credit for their discoveries, or they pretended to be men to do what they wanted to do. So I think we seem to have this idea that it didn't happen. It did, but who writes the history? Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like men wrote the history, so why would they bother? Tell me, if people want to come to Bath, and I would absolutely advise that they do that because Bath is a beautiful city. Mm. Where are you and when are you open? And where can people find out more? So we are located on New King Street, which is in the centre of Bath. And we are open from 10 to 5pm, Tuesdays to Sundays. They can find out more about us on our website, herschelmuseum.org.uk, or Googling us, which should come up as top search term on Google if you type in Herschel Museum. And yes, we are we are commemorating and celebrating William Herschel and Caroline Herschel's life on the 200th anniversary of his death this year. We will be having an exhibition celebrating both astronomers um, later on in the year. And we're running a, a whole programme of events uh, with various partners from around the country, which can all be found out on our website. Um, so do, do check out. And we're even running um, observing sessions throughout the year at the museum. So uh, we work closely with the Bath Astronomers, who are a local amateur astronomy group. They jokingly say they were established in 1781, uh, which was when William discovered Uranus. So they're, they're claiming him as their first member. They come and do observing sessions with us in the evenings and some solar observing sessions, uh, which we run on a Sunday. Um, so the, there'll be several throughout the year um, and you can find out about those on our website and they were really, really interesting because they're, they're great at explaining astronomy and observing to the most novice astronomer, including me, <laughs> um, because I didn't, I didn't know anything about astronomy. 
uh, when I started working here. And now I know a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Izzy. This has been brilliant. That's all right. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we sneak up to the net to hit a cheeky drop shot at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Of course, I am talking about the new Women's Tennis Association world number one, Iga Sviantek, who claimed the top spot this week after winning the Miami Open, and that comes after winning Indian Wells last month and also the Qatar Open in February. In fact, her 6-4, 6-love win against Naomi Osaka at the weekend extends her winning streak to a massive 17 match. Before this week, her highest ever ranking was fourth in September last year. And while the shock retirement of Ash Barty, which I spoke about on last week's podzine, will undoubtedly have accelerated that rise, I'm pretty sure she'd have done it on her own steam regardless. The 20-year-old is the youngest of the four women to have ever won the Sunshine Double, and that's Miami and Indian Wells. And she is the first Polish person, male or female, to have reached the top singles ranking in the sport. She's a dab hand on the clay. A dab foot, perhaps? And having already won the French Open age 19 back in 2020, she'll certainly be one to watch come May. Good news for former number one Naomi Osaka as well, although she did miss out on the title. She'd slipped down the rankings after missing a couple of big tournaments and she's now boosted back up within the top 50 at number 35. Okay. I'm going to deliver a classic shit sandwich here, which is, after talking about the England cricket team being rubbish for weeks, only for them to bounce back and make it to the final to defend their title in the World Cup, alas, they lost it. And Australia beat them by 71 runs in the end, but they did ever so well to get there after a really difficult run of results, and Nat Siver ended up regaining the number one all-rounder ranking in one-day international cricket. So it's not all bad. In fact, Siver herself took two centuries in the tournament, including in the final. Look, I've absolutely missold myself here. That wasn't a shit sandwich at all. Onwards. Good news if you're me, i.e. English... I mean, some good news, because that was obviously not so much. Not so much if you happen to be Scottish. In the second round of the Women's Six Nations, England comprehensively spanked Italy 74-0. I'm not going to gloat about it. It's like a Manchester United fan showing off after they beat Accrington Stanley. Or indeed, Charlton Athletic, who are currently one place below Accrington in the League One table. Anyway, I digress. Wales beat Scotland 24-19, and France beat Ireland 45 as in 42-5, not just like 45, that would be a weird score. Anyway, England and Wales will face each other on Saturday, so that will be a big match. And you can actually go and watch it if you fancy. Tickets are available, or you can watch it on BBC Two. Finally, congratulations to Liverpool women who secured promotion back up from the Women's Championship to the top tier, the WSL, last weekend. And they had two more games of the season yet to play, but they did it anyway, beating Bristol City 4-2. A draw would have done it. You didn't ask, but I'll tell you anyway, Charlton Athletic women are seventh, so very well clear of relegation. I think the jig is pretty much up for Coventry, though, who are rooted to the bottom of the table with just five points. 
Who's going to come down from the WSL? Well, it does look rather like it will be Birmingham City. But watch this space. There are a few more games yet to play. The top of the table is a lot tighter with just one point between Chelsea and second place Arsenal. That is all for me this week and I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to What the Actual Foot Did I Just Sit Through? <laughs> Jen, what film that we watched this week led to the renaming of this section? This week we watched 1997's Chasing Amy, the third instalment of 90s, I'm saying this with bunny ears by the way, a super cool dude slash prolific peddler of student drama du jour, Kevin Smith's View Askewniverse series. As with the other films in the series it features recurring characters jay and silent bob and takes place in and around the new jersey area what makes them a series apart from that well lots of sequels and reboots by the looks of things but who knows let's look at the plot to be honest this isn't going to take very long right Bezzy mates Holden McNeil and Banky Edwards, played by Ben Affleck and Jason Lee, are the co-creators of a successful comic book series, Blunt Man and Chronic, inspired by stoner duo Jay and Silent Bob. They meet fellow comic book artiste Alyssa Jones, played by Joey Lauren Adams, at some sort of comic con event and Holden is immediately smitten. But wait, she's gay, so his feelings are, alas, unrequited. The pair hang out, he falls in love with her, she's initially annoyed when he tells her but decides she's in love with him too and they get together. It's all lovely stuff but Banky, who is a total bellend if we're honest, is put out because she's stealing his best friend. Poor old Banky. Well, it's his time to shine when he finds out some intelligence about Alyssa's past sexual encounters which included shock horror, some men... Holden thought he was the first man to conquer her, as it were, and his ego takes a beating. To be fair, his ego must have been mahoosive to have even attempted to get away with that goatee beard. But, you know, so I will say his ego probably needed a bit of a crushing. But anyway, you can imagine what happens next. He has a big Barney with Alyssa about what a total slut bag she's been. I think he actually says slut. I can't fully remember. I've blocked a lot of it out. She's obviously pretty pissed off and he mopes because he feels sexually inferior. Smith inserts himself in the role of Christ as Silent Bob, who, as ever, opens his mouth at the last minute to opine some earth-shattering wisdom. And Holden interprets that as, why don't I ask Banky and Alyssa for a threesome? It's the only way to get out of this pickle. There's no other way. There's none. It's the only way. Alyssa dumps him romantically, Banky dumps him professionally, everyone cries, everyone sort of makes up the end. Do you think that's a fair summary of, of events? I think it was too kind. <laughs> okay. Smith had something of a cult following in the kind of 90s, early 2000s period, a kind of safe space for stoners, misfits and comic book nerds, though Smith himself has said he was not, in fact, a stoner. I did not enjoy this the first time I watched it in the 90s, but mostly because I found it boring. Watching it now, I could see what Smith was trying to do, but in so many ways, and 
I'm not keeping my powder dry here. He fell very short of the mark. But the film did do well. It made a box office total of over $12 million from a budget of $250,000. Having initially been played at only three cinemas in the US on its opening weekend, eventually showing in almost 500 cinemas a couple of weeks later and moving into the US box office top 10. Critics generally thought it was okay and they praised the film's handling of the rom-com genre as an exploration of the torturous business of love and sex rather than the usual kind of saccharine happy ending narrative. He won the 1997 Independent Spirit Award for Best Screenplay and it also has an approval rating of 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. However... It was not well received in all quarters and it is pretty obvious to see why now. One of the criticisms was of what was described as a heterosexual conversion narrative and I can think of a few more off the top of my head besides that. However, on that particular point, in 2021, John Oliver sort of hit the nail on the head really when he said of the film, set aside the notion that any lesbian could be magically turned straight if the right guy comes along. What's extra offensive in hindsight is the idea that that guy would be Ben Affleck. Mm. (laughs) He's got a really wet mouth, it's unnerving. The beard and the hair combo... I don't know where to start. It's it's something else. Anyway, fair's fair to Smith. He had already taken that criticism on board and addressed it in the 2019 film Jay and Silent Bob reboot, in which it is written into the film that Chasing Amy has been remade as a Netflix story told from Alyssa's perspective. And in the interview at the time with the enemy, Smith said, I literally get to have Joey say... This is always a story that would have been better told from a queer perspective or a woman's perspective, any perspective but a cis white male. As Alyssa is seen in the film with the girlfriend who we see her with at the end of Chasing Amy, he says it completely reframes that narrative. Anyway, I assume you've both seen this before. Is that a correct assumption? Yes. I hadn't seen it before. Had you not? Okay, all right. So let's start with the big fat elephant in the room. How offensive it is by modern standards. Hannah, you've seen it before. Do you remember thinking it was as dodgy as it is the first time you saw it? Well, yes. I mean, the interesting thing is both Mick and I have read an article in BuzzFeed which contradicts almost everything you've said there by saying that actually Chasing Amy's were ahead of its time by talking about how fluid sexual attraction is. And I found I found that mad and I don't necessarily agree that it has to be told from a queer perspective because you know lots of men do get obsessed with lesbians and so you know if you want to tell it from their opinion but yeah it's massively offensive I get that Banky is supposed to be a homophobe but he doesn't Mm. need to say the f word and the d word as many times as he does it is super offensive from that point of view and again Ben Affleck, his character Holden, he he goes with that, oh, you're a slag line, you know, basically, which he, maybe he would have said that in a temper fit and all of that. But then she gets to respond to him at a pitch that I actually couldn't hear. It was like fucking supersonic. I don't know what her great argument back to him was because <laughs> I didn't hear it. So I'm, I'm a bit confused because I also think it's really sexist. And again, it's it's sexism that's like not just done once or twice. It's really fucking hammered home how sexist this film is. As I said, that is one thing that is offensive about it. But I think there's so much more that is offensive yeah. so, than just that. So at the time, yes. Yes, I did think it was. Because I didn't at all. I think I maybe thought, I don't know. I, I think I just, I think I was about 15, 16 when I watched this and I just thought it was fucking dull. 
because it was a load of people just wanging on about their feelings in a bit of a Dawson's Creek way. I'm not sure I would have compared it to Dawson's because obviously Dawson's is very pure in comparison. Like the only thing I could say in his defence is that I think we are supposed to think that Holden is a is an idiot basically and that he's a victim of like societal pressures on men and male anxiety about their own sexuality and I think those are points sort of worth making I just think the execution of it is on so many levels so offensive Mick what do you it hates women so hard it absolutely hates women women are there solely for the male gaze to be hated on objectified or fucked and it hates lesbians even harder because they've got boundaries that mean they don't want dick right it is packed with homophobia and it is basically just a two hour long, two hours as well, Jen. We know how we feel about these movies. It shouldn't be this long. Pepe the Frog gif. It feels very incel. And when Holden apologises at the end, he does it by writing a comic about her, using her actual name without her consent. And I think it's implied that her being in his comic is what has made her sales go up at the second Comic Con. It's just absolutely outrageous. If this had been a physical DVD I was watching, I'd have set fire to it. I hated it so hard. And this comment from Smith and the stuff that you were saying earlier, he says, I was shooting in the fucking dark. This is what he said in an interview in 2017. I didn't know anything about being a lesbian or the sexual practices of a lesbian. And yet, Kevin Smith, you still felt confident enough to write a film on that very topic. And as Jen has explained do another film later saying that you know he's had two shots at this it's just oh it made me very angry jen it made me very angry i picked it because <laughs> i thought it'd be interesting to discuss not because i liked it just to be very clear <laughs> i think it's other major major flaw and again this might just be me well the major flaw is joey lauren adams i think she's dreadful as a character she's really annoying but as an actress i don't think she does a very good job in this so where is the female character with which women are supposed to identify it's just a load of blokes and then her and she like i say she's doing a not very good job interestingly he and her were a, an item at the time mm. which I think sometimes when you get men that direct their girlfriends, you think, oh, yeah, you failed to realise here that the rest of the world isn't in love with her quite as much as you are. And they're not going to forgive her a not great performance. I don't think she's awful in it, but I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't love any of them in it. I found it, I watched it with my mum as well, which was a bit uncomfortable at times. Well, but I, I think the thing is exactly as you said, Mickey, it's very, all of the women in it, well, the one woman in it, it and, and the, you know, uncredited lesbians or in the, in the club or whatever, is very male gazy. And I think the thing about her and the reason why you can't relate to it as a woman is because she's just manic pixie dream girl trope isn't she she's like completely that oh she's a woman who makes comics and she's a bit unattainable because she's gay it's just like it's not it's not for women that's it though it's it's not for women is it that's why there were no relatable women in it because it's written by a man in his mid-20s having some sort of wank fantasy yeah well exactly that exactly that i thought the stuff about race was really the stuff at the beginning hooper played mm. by dwight yule at the beginning i don't think now i don't think you get to write that as a straight white man i really don't <laughs> just have your black character pulling out a gun yeah like for no reason i know it's a joke but i, I don't think you get to make that joke if you're kevin smith 
I wish Kevin Smith hadn't thought he could write this film at all, Jen, so yeah. we can say that we're in agreement here. Although, I, I will say again, something I disagree with, you said you don't think anyone's good in this. I actually think Jason Lee's spectacularly good in this. I really? Because he's very, very good at one thing, and that's what he's doing in this, which is sarcastic, shouty, angry man. I mean, the fact his character is dislikable. It's interesting that he's one of the few, at this point, I think this was maybe... Only the second acting job he'd ever had. And he's way better than everybody else who's a proper actor in it. So that maybe tells you all you Can need I to ask know. you both a question about Banky? Mm. Uh, yeah. So the line we're fed to explain his horrific behaviour and horrific homophobia, I can't I can't actually express how hard I hated that because it's just appalling and constant yeah. and awful. But is that he is actually a closeted gay man. That's the theory. Mm. Did either of you two believe that? No, not at all. And I think also, I don't think it is uncommon for people, male or female, to take a bit of umbrage sometimes when their best mate, who they previously spent all their time with, gets together with someone else and they have less time for them. I think that's quite normal we, we, stuff. we talk about it in the forthcoming episode of flicking where we watch bridesmaids so absolutely yeah i totally agree with you and and actually in banky's defense he might not be saying it in the right way but at the start when he says what are you doing she's a lesbian he's got a good fucking point <laughs> yeah. yeah he has a really good point if you want to be friends with her be friends with her but don't fucking sexually harass her and that's the other thing isn't it it's that Alyssa isn't a lesbian Alyssa is bisexual or pansexual it's not it's mm. not kind of given a label but if if she's that from the off there's no drama there's no will they won't they so actually she missells herself not that she should be having to sell herself to men at all but you know what i mean she sort of mm. is missold as a lesbian when actually her sexuality is different to that so yeah it's just all based on a freaking lie as well yeah there was nothing redeeming about this film apart from the fact it ended i think the thread about holden being insecure about his sexuality is a valid topic to explore and i think it i think it actually is in a way ahead of its time in that the argument is don't slut shame basically like she's mm. being slut shamed and the film is saying that is wrong so i do think in that respect maybe it is a little bit ahead of its time i would accept that but i think the execution of it as i said is so bad and so offensive on so many levels and you're absolutely right like the the monologue banky about like going down on women you're watching it and you're like i can see what you're trying to do but actually like he does just sound like an incel like, he yeah, really does yeah. just sound like an incel. It's, and, it's horrible. And that's it, that point you just made, that, yeah, that is that is an interesting sort of topic worthy of exploration and, like, maybe ahead of its mm. time that you're not supposed to slut shame, but blimey, doesn't it have fun slut shaming? It really enjoys doing <laughs> it before it goes, but we shouldn't do that. It really enjoys yeah. doing it, and that, Agreed. to me, makes it feel disingenuous. Does anybody like any other Kevin Smith films? out of interest i mean i was a teenager at the time so like i really liked more rats mm. when i watched it i don't know how i would feel about it now because it is probably like 20 years since i last saw it but i loved it when i watched it i thought it was hilarious i thought jay yeah. and silent bob yeah. were hilarious but they are so like so jay is so Jay's misogynist horrific. like the language is a 
appalling. And it is funny the way Smith does insert himself in this role where he gets to come along at the end. And I think he does it in all of them, doesn't he? Where he like says nothing and then he says something deeply profound. And it's he's he's very much a one trick pony, isn't he? Like all all of the films. I, I like I, I actually like Clark's like Dogma as oh, no, well. I see. I love Dogma because it takes the piss out of the mm. Catholic Church and it's got George Carling and Chris Rock in it. So yeah, I mean, a Dogma I think is fun. Uh, Clark's is because that's his first one. It's impressive that it exists. I have to say, it is one of those films, a bit like Reservoir Dogs or Twenty Four Seven or any of those films that someone just went out and made by themselves for virtually nothing. That is really impressive. And having worked in a shop as a teenager, you know, <laughs> you do hate your customers. And, and so it's actually, it's quite accurate. But yeah, the, the ones in the middle, I haven't got a huge amount of time for. I haven't seen any other Kevin Smith films and it may or may not surprise you to find out that I'm not going to seek them <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> Somebody bought me this on video, on VHS. Can I set fire to yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> So guys, surprise me. Rated or dated? Mickey. Dated. 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 I agree with you. Dated should be incinerated. There you go. It's a new category. (laughs) New category. (laughs) (laughs) Whose turn is it next? Mickey, it must be you. It's me and it's just me and the watching it as well, Jen. Uh, Along with the listener, if you would care to join us, we are going to watch 1977's Three Women. I don't even know what that is. It's a Robert Altman, so, you know, the auteur. Mm. I look forward to listening. Standard issue for all women.